Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Maltrip, Chief Executive here and a proud member. It's February 10th. You were the Virtual City Club Forum. Thank you so much for bearing with us. Uh, we had some last minute technical difficulties. We are now live on we are live on YouTube, and uh, I believe we will be getting the link out to everybody, um, and we'll eventually be ha having this up at cityclub.org as well. About 10 years ago or so, I met today's speaker. I was interviewing him, actually, for an open position on a project I was running, and to be honest, I very much wanted to hire him. I didn't move fast enough, though, and he wound up taking a job elsewhere at Cuyahoga County, and today our guest is asking you to consider hiring him as well. His name is Justin Bibb, and he wants to be the next mayor of the city of Cleveland. As you know, we've been speaking with Cleveland mayoral candidates over the last few months, and you can find these previous interviews in our archives at cityclub.org. And of course, we're going to continue to do this. Eventually, we will do debates in this race as well. But let me tell you a little bit about Justin Bibb. He's a Cleveland native, grew up in the Mount Pleasant neighborhood on the southeast side of the city. He currently serves as the chief strategy officer of Urban Nova, which is a startup focused on solving the unique challenges faced by mid-sized cities. He interned for then U.S. Senator Barack Obama and served as special assistant for the Cuyahoga County Executive. He also worked at Gallup, where he headed up the global cities practice. And most recently, prior to Urban Nova, he was vice president for corporate strategy at KeyBank. He's a downtown resident. He's helped create a couple of different nonprofits, including Hack Cleveland and Cleveland Can't Wait. He'll talk a little bit about those. And he was also appointed to the board of the Greater Cleveland Regional Transit Agency in 2018. He also serves on a few other nonprofit boards as well. As in every other City Club forum, as in every City Club forum, you can participate today with your questions. Text your questions to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can tweet them at the City Club, and we'll try to work them in. Justin Bibb, welcome back to the City Club of Cleveland. It's good to see you. You are on Here. mute. You're on mute. Oh. There you go. Start over. It's Justin Bibb. Welcome back to the City Club of Cleveland. <laughs> it is good to see you. Thank you, Dan. You know, I didn't know I'd have to run for mayor to finally make the cut to be at the City Club. So uh, thanks so much Justin, for having don't, me. Don't play. You've been on our panels before. You've been on our stage before. I'm not going to let you pretend like, like this is your first time, like your first bite of the apple. Justin, um, your announcement yeah. and your uh, your campaign announcement and a lot of your rhetoric and uh, your social media posts have uh, complained a lot about the status quo. I want to start there. What's wrong with the status quo right now? You know, Dan, uh, we lack a sense of urgency uh, in the city right now, and that's why I'm running for mayor. We're the poorest big city in America. Uh, nearly 50% of our kids are living in poverty, the worst connected city in terms of the digital divide, and the worst city in America for black women. And when I thought about running for mayor 18 months ago, I went to a favorite book of mine, Why We Can't Wait by Dr. King. And in that book, Dr. King talked about the importance of having a sense of urgency to advance the rights of African-Americans. And I find our city at that critical crossroads right now. And now more than ever, we need new ideas and new leadership and a sense of urgency to make sure Cleveland can be in a place of opportunity for everybody. Um, say more, though, about the status quo, like specifically, I mean, you've been critical of yeah. the mayor and city council. And there are a couple of uh, at least a couple of city council members who have expressed interest in in being a part of this race and running for the mayor's office themselves. We've interviewed them on this uh, at the city club. Um, what are they doing wrong? 
Well, for one example, uh, let's talk about the digital divide. You know, we organized Hack Cleveland after the tragic murder of Tamir Rice in 2014. We were banging down the door, talking to people about the importance of connecting underserved communities of color with access to high-speed broadband. And now, uh, seven years later, we are now finally uh, talking about the importance of addressing the digital divide. This is an issue uh, that we could have tackled a long time ago, but yet we didn't have a sense of urgency. I would also say when it comes to addressing the public health crisis in the city right now, we haven't had a sense of urgency in terms of really eradicating uh, some of the health disparities that we see right now. And our public health department has not been as intentional as it could be to make sure that our residents have what they need uh, to respond to COVID-19. And so this is a mindset issue that we failed to tackle in this community. And that status quo is our biggest threat for us to achieve our potential as a city. Let me just say something really quickly about to uh, our viewers. We had some technical difficulties for whatever reason. Uh, we are not able to stream this live at, at cityclub.org. We are streaming on YouTube. If you're watching, please share that YouTube link so that others know where to find this interview and know where to find us if they want to join the conversation right now. Um, Justin, as we think about the um, some of the issues that uh, the city of Cleveland is facing, one of the most pressing has to do with reform. It's we, we talk about it in a lot of different ways, police accountability, criminal justice reform, there's a lot of different terms that we use. Um, the consent decree, the which is a part of it. Um, this is a, a whole nest of issues. Importantly, it also accounts for about 50% of the budget of the city of Cleveland. What would you be doing with that, with those resources right now? What kinds of conversations would you be having with Chief Williams or do you intend to have with Chief Williams if you win this election? Dan, uh, first off, this is a personal issue for me. Um, I lost my cousin to a violent murder uh, during my second year of graduate school. Uh, he was choked to death by his partner, and it took the cops and the EMS over 40 minutes to show up. Uh, just last year, I had to bury a family friend, and she was the 131st homicide in the city. And I was a pallbearer in her funeral, and I saw her friends Instagram live her burial like it was normal. This is not normal. and. We need to make sure that we have a police department that prioritizes racial equity and social justice, first and foremost. Secondly, we also have to realize that the current model of policing is not working. You know, when you look at the importance of addressing the root causes of crime, you know, we need to make sure that we have social workers and behavioral health specialists accompanying some of our police officers for nonviolent uh, dispatch calls to truly make sure that the right de-escalation tactics are, are deployed by our officers. I would also say this, you know, this is a, a 400 year problem that we've had in this country of structural racism that exists. And it's not gonna be solved overnight. But what I can do as mayor is prioritize having a culture of accountability, having a culture that's gonna make sure that we treat our residents with respect and deploy constitutionally appropriate policing because my grandma, who's still in the house I grew up in on 21st and Dove, that's what she wants and that's what she demands. And the residents across the city are demanding that too. Justin, is there structural racism in the police department? Absolutely. There's structural racism in many of the systems uh, that plague our city and our country. And we have to be honest about that truth. Uh, and until we're honest about that truth, we'll never be able to see 
of the systemic change we need in this city and really across this country. Um, I want to switch over to some of the other uh, issues that the city of Cleveland faces. Um, lead poisoning has been plaguing uh, the city for generations, frankly. And um, we now see parts of the community galvanizing, forming consensus and, um, and focusing on it. Um, I would suspect given the urgency with yeah. which you are a, a, attacking other issues, you don't see this as fast enough. No, I mean, this was an issue that we were talking about for decades in Cleveland. And I also wanna give acknowledgement to the activists who really mobilized our community to make sure that our city government prioritize this, this issue. Uh, and we need to do a better job of making sure we're, we're testing despite the pandemic, uh, that we're educating our landlords and our homeowners to make sure they have the right certification and upkeep in their homes to make sure that there's no lead paint in our homes. But also, you know, we can't, we can't negate the importance of the mayor's office and the bully pulpit of political leadership. And for far too long, we've outsourced our leadership to other players in town. Uh, and in a BIP administration, I'm gonna do everything I can to advocate at the state level and the federal level to give Clevelanders the resources we need to address lead, to address high quality education, and to make sure we have an inclusive economic recovery from COVID-19. What do you mean by that? What do you, hold on, what do you mean that yeah. we've outsourced leadership? What do you, specifically, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I'll give you an example with, with the West Side Market. You know, this is an issue that, you know, having a strong mayoral leadership could really go a long way to make sure that our vendors are getting the support they need uh, to have an effective uh, West Side Market. There have been many calls from vendors and community leaders to figure out what's a solution for the West Side Market. And I don't think we need a lot of consultants to solve this problem. As a former consultant myself, I recognize the importance of consultants. But in this case, we know what the solution is. We need to bring in a best-in-class operator for the West Side Market, make, make sure we prioritize vendor and community engagement in the process, and also make sure that you know our residents get the right return on the investment for this amazing city asset. So that's a prime example where we can't continue to outsource our leadership to other people. We got to make sure we can make these bold, big decisions uh, right now in City Hall. It's ironic that you are suggesting that um, we shouldn't outsource our leadership, but in the end, we should outsource our leadership on the West Side Market. Like we shouldn't do keep it in house. We should engage uh, an outside vendor or an outside organization to run it. Um, that speaks to. Uh, does, does let me ask you this? Yeah. Does that speak to a lack of capacity in City Hall to manage the basic delivery of services? Yes, and and I think it speaks to the 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 lack of understanding the importance of getting back to the basics. You know, you know, we have to realize that you know we have to make sure we have the right culture to improve basic city services. And for example, we should continue to maintain ownership of the West Side Market, but also recognizing that having a best-in-class operator to ensure that 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 market can be an effective asset for our vendors and our community members must be a key part of how we enact a change at the local level. Justin, you are not an elder statesman. In <laughs> no. fact, you're hardly even a mid-career uh, politician. You're not even a politician, except now that you accept and you've got about maybe like one day less than one month as a politician yeah. officially. 
Um, what on earth makes you think, you young whippersnapper, that you can do this? You know, Dan, um, I've been getting that question a lot uh, from residents and leaders across across the city. And, and I will say this, uh, I'm the least experienced in the status quo. Uh, my first response to how to get things done in the city won't be no. It'll be, how can I help you? But, but I'll also say, you know, I share the lived experiences of many of our residents across the city. I know what it's like uh, to have a mom who's struggling to make ends meet, who had to make the hard choice of, you know, us sharing a bunk bed in my grandma's house so I can afford high quality education. I know what it's like uh, to have a family member who's coming back from the penitentiary who can't find a job because they have a felony conviction, who is still trying to make sure that they give their family other resources they need. So I share the struggles and share the pain of the lived experiences of our residents, but I also have the managerial experience to understand what works in other cities and what doesn't work. Having hold advice. On. Hold on, yep. you're stumping. You're doing you're doing talking points, and I really want to get get into this here. If you want to change how city hall operates, yeah, um, there are you know thousands of people who have been on the city payroll for decades. Yeah. Um, and like exactly what will you do? I understand that you have like the lived experience that allows you to connect with lots of city residents and everybody yeah. understands that. The biography, the biographical stuff is important. Managing a, a hundred billion dollar budget or whatever the budget is, you, you probably know better than I do. Um, seeking to change the culture inside of an organization yeah. as complex and as deeply rooted Mm -hmm. as City Hall is and all of the various city enterprises, including and especially including the Department of Public Safety. That's massive. Yeah. Um, seriously, how are you going to do that? Well, the first thing we need to do is do a, a top down review of every single department and have a third performance audit of every single department in City Hall to understand what's working and what's not working. I think secondly, we have to recognize there are some great public servants working inside City Hall right now, but the, the culture of accountability is not there. The culture of transparency is not there. And we need to make sure we're restructuring these departments to execute on that culture. I would also say this, you know, we haven't had a city that truly encourages resident voice and resident participation in the policymaking process. You know, deploying initiatives like participatory budgeting to make sure residents have a say of what's happening at the local level could really go a long way to make sure that we are, are deploying the right kind of city services at the neighborhood level to address these issues for our residents. And so being able to change that culture, but also having the ability to say, I'm gonna bring a best in class team of advisors and leaders inside city hall as members of my cabinet that share that culture that shared the importance of having that accountability will be a key priority for me as a leader. I wanna have a team of rivals that'll challenge me, that'll challenge this community to step up to eradicate that status quo. And we can't be afraid to look at what other cities have done and say, we can't get it done in Cleveland. And it's that mindset, I believe, that has plagued us for far too long. Are you prepared to fire people? Absolutely, because the buck stops with me as mayor. I have to set the cultural tone as the CEO uh, of the city. And if 
members of my cabinet can't comply with that cultural tone, then they shouldn't be a part of my administration. No, but I'm not just talking about firing people in your cabinet. I mean, that's sort of easier because yeah. you will have hired them. Yeah. I'm talking about um, the uh, people uh, who uh, a friend of mine in City Hall referred to as the like yeah. the um, been here, be here's. Yeah. Right. I've been here a long time and I'll be here when you leave. Um, like, are you prepared to fire civil longtime civil servants who have lost sight, uh, who, who may have lost sight of the customer service imperative of City Hall? You know, we have to make sure that we are giving every employee, every civil servant in City Hall uh, the right development and training they need to do their jobs. And we have to set that tone uh, as a leadership team. Uh, and, you know, if folks aren't going to comply, then we have to make sure we hold them accountable in every way that we can. But then within the law. Let me remind our viewers that if you have a question for Justin Bibb, who wants to be the next mayor of the city of Cleveland, you can text your question to 330-541-5794, 330-541-5794 to text your question. If you're on Twitter, tweet it at the City Club. We'll work it into the program. This is your City Club Forum, and it's uh, our series of interviews with candidates who want to be mayor, the next mayor of the city of Cleveland. Um, let's talk about your neighborhood now, not the neighborhood you grew up in, but the yeah. neighborhood you live in now, downtown Cleveland. Um, prior to in what we euphemistically refer to now as the before times, right? Prior to the, the pandemic and the lockdown, um, there was a sense that downtown was really um, very firmly coming back and it was it was progressing as it had been really since 2015, 2016 you know, and with lots of improvements and a real increase in the number of residential units being brought on and made available and even affordable housing units being brought, you know, being planned. Um, the lockdown, the economic, the economic impact of the pandemic, and then the riots mm -hmm. all had a really adverse impact on this. Now we still see some development happening in downtown Cleveland. Um, but it does feel that the um, the momentum is gone. What should be done? Well, I think we got to continue to build on some of the early investments we've made in downtown. Uh, we're on track to have uh, nearly 30,000 residents uh, and, and really making it a neighborhood of choice where you know you can live, work and play. But also think there are some missed opportunities we can leverage uh, to make sure that downtown remains uh, a viable urban core for, for the entire region. Uh, first and foremost, uh, making sure we have uh, better programming and activate public square. Uh, that's an asset that many in our community has spent millions of dollars to invest in. And, you know, the city needs to do a better job of making sure we have the right operator of public square to maximize that asset. I would say, secondly, uh, making sure we do a better job of connecting downtown to the lakefront. You know, I get jealous uh, when I go to other cities across the country uh, and their lakefronts uh, are truly a Bible. Right. And this is about uh, land access equity. And I think uh, decommissioning Burke should be on the table and finding ways to connect downtown to the lakefront could go a long way. I would also say uh, we need to make sure that we are prioritizing investing, not just only in large corporates uh, who want to come and bring their headquarters downtown, but also help to support our small businesses as well. Uh, to ensure they have what they need as we think about what a post-COVID-19 recovery looks like. So you're, when you say downtown, you're talking about retail establishments, restaurants. Coffee shops. Would you do, I mean, I, I keep asking, uh, you know, I was asking legislators and others, like, what about like a restaurant recovery act or something yeah. like that? I mean, 
it does feel like we have we've lost some real some restaurants of real significance. I mean, the losses are you know they're not just incidental at this point; they're material, and they're some they of the, the big names. And you know, I think Dan, this is a, an important question that we need to make sure that we are, are talking to our small business owners, I, clearly articulating what they need from the city in terms of uh, recovery aid, uh, small business supports. Uh, the fact that during COVID-19, uh, many, many business owners maybe applied for grant funding in, in, in April and didn't get it until November. And so this is about how do we make sure that we have a city hall that is agile, responsive, and as deliberate and intentional as possible about what type of aid we're deploying to support uh, our small business owners. And that's really for across the entire city. I'm glad you said that, like across the entire city. Yeah. Sometimes there is this um, people may pe some people have a tendency to make a lot of a perceived tension between downtown and the other neighborhoods um, in the city. And um, and they seem to see that there's some sort of uh, kind of zero sum game in terms of resources, which I suppose in a budget there are. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, but how do you see it? Like what's your what would be your your guiding philosophy, especially given how much work you've done yeah. looking at other cities as a professional consultant? You know, I don't um, I don't buy into this argument of it's downtown versus the neighborhoods. You know, I, I created a major in urban studies at American and I've studied uh, many different cities really across the world. And uh, one thing that we know clear from the data is that having a thriving urban core is essential to having a thriving uh, competitive city. And so uh, we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to support the core of Cleveland. But at the end of the day, we also need to be as bold as we can uh, to bring back forgotten neighborhoods across the city. I look at the Southeast side uh, and that's a place where it used to be a beacon of, of the black middle class. It can be that beacon of the black middle class once again by leveraging the bully pulpit of the mayor's office and convening our private and philanthropic partners as well to make sure that we're doing everything we can to bring back those forgotten neighborhoods. I mean, we essentially need a new Marshall Plan for these areas of Mount Pleasant and Lee Harvard to make sure that they're getting everything they need uh, to be neighborhoods of choice uh, for those residents. Justin, let me ask you this. Why aren't we more like Atlanta? Mm. Why did we become so much like Detroit or, you know, um, I, I mean, why aren't we more like, you know, uh, like, like Minneapolis, St. Paul? Like why? You know, What's yeah. where, where did we because and I was having this conversation with one of my board members the other day about diversity in particular. And um, and she was pointing out that in our business leadership uh, class, like the sort of this, the C-suite, uh, the collective C-suite. And I know you've uh, you're aware of this. It's um, it, it the lack of diversity is almost stunning, even more so when you think about how Cleveland was leading in black political power leading the nation in black political power 50 years ago. You know, um, the, the Cuyahoga River has been our version of the Berlin Wall for far too long. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, uh, my dad told me I couldn't go to Little Italy because of its racist history. Uh, I didn't go to the West Side Market until I was a look up to Cleveland as a junior in high school. And that's the same story of, of many black residents in the city. I would also say many of you know my white friends uh, from Cleveland or who moved to Cleveland haven't really ventured to the Southeast side ever as well. And so as a city, we need to be more intentional about how to unify all of our neighborhoods together. I would also say, you know, what Atlanta has done well 
is they have leaned into the fact that they're a majority black city. Uh, you know, uh, former mayor uh, Maynard Jackson, when they rebuilt the airport, made sure that black contractors, black engineers uh, had access to those contracts so, so they could help build the black middle class uh, in Atlanta. And now you've seen black millionaires emerge from that mayoral leadership from uh, Maynard Jackson. And there is strength in being a black majority city. Uh, and I think as we think about our COVID-19 recovery, that's a strength we need to lean into to make sure that this city works for everybody. Because until we bring back the Southeast side and other forgotten neighborhoods like Clark Fulton across the city, Cleveland will never be able to achieve its long-term potential. We got a sort of a late start, so so I'm going to continue with a couple yeah. more questions before we get to the to the Q and A. So we'll be going until about 105, 110. Um, but uh, Justin, you mentioned earlier uh, citizen participation. Mm -hmm. um, since COVID started, I, I don't believe that City Council has had a public comment section uh, because they've been doing things entirely on Zoom and for whatever reason they don't feel like they can they can accommodate that in that format um voter turnout in the november election was 53 percent roughly inside the city of cleveland while it was almost two-thirds 66 percent 65 66 percent across the nation and something around 62 percent across the state um the last mayoral election in 2017 uh voter turnout was somewhere around just 30 percent um, what do you think is going on here and what do you intend to do about it? I've, I've been getting this question a lot, Dan, uh, from voters across the city. Uh, and I would say this, when you've had a city that denied voters the ability uh, to vote on the minimum wage, uh, that's a problem. Uh, when you've had a city that has denied voters the ability to even vote on a major economic development deal, that's a major problem. So of course, you're not gonna show up to vote even when you can't even have public comment at a city council meeting. Why would I vote? And so until we prioritize democracy building beyond an election cycle, I don't think we'll be able to ever eradicate this problem. And so policies like uh, participatory budgeting go a long way to making sure that residents feel like they're a part of what's happening in their city. Having an open data portal where residents can have access to the data they need about what's going on and that we're transparent about what's working and what's not working goes a long way. But we also have to make sure that we are connecting why voting matters to our residents. Um, and if COVID-19 has taught us anything, is that all politics is local. How we respond to COVID and the vaccination process, how we build a culture of accountability in our police department to make sure that our police system works for everyone is part of that process. And how we make sure we have an inclusive economy as well all that is interconnected. And so we need to make sure that we are prioritizing equitable democracy building throughout the entire uh, life cycle of how we do uh, government in this city. With it, you know, this is a, a goofy idea. Um, yeah. and I'll run by you real quick. I thought like since city council hasn't been doing public comment that city that the city club could, we could just do like a massive Zoom town hall and whoever wants three minutes could have three minutes mm -hmm. and we could stream it live on, on YouTube and then yeah. send city council a link. Not a bad idea. The uh, last question for me before we get to questions from our viewers and the number again, if you want to text a question, 330-541-5794. It's right there at the bottom of the screen. 
or if you're on Twitter, tweet it at the City Club and we'll work it in. I think some people are also leaving uh, questions in the comments on on the YouTube stream, and that's fine as well. Um, the schools, Justin. Yeah. Um, uh, Patrick O'Donnell, uh, who used to write for Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer, now writes for the 74 million, uh, wrote back in December that some, maybe as many as 8,000 children are sort of missing from the schools right now. Uh, some of that is accountable for, it can be accounted for when you think of the kindergartners, eligible kindergartners whose families chose not to send them, not to start this year because it just was too, too much of a hassle and kids are, you know, redshirted in kindergarten all the time. So you can kind of understand that, but that doesn't account for 8,000, right? Mm-hmm. Um, also pre-K, uh, Patrick wrote another piece there too about the, you know, we've had this push towards universal pre-K across the city and across, you know, through pre for Clee and across the the county. Um, In 2019, Patrick wrote that there, Patrick O'Donnell wrote that there were roughly 2,900 students enrolled in pre-K and we were on a very positive trend with almost 5,000, 4,900 in 2019. That number has plummeted to 2,400 in 2020. Um, The schools are under mayoral control and the bully pulpit allows you to have an influence over pre-K. If you're mayor, what would you do? Well, uh, number one, we need to have a strategy to address the learning loss our kids are going to experience due to COVID-19. And that strategy needs to make sure it incorporates parents, teachers, and students uh, in that process. I would also say, uh, secondly, uh, we need to increase the number of high-quality schools at the neighborhood level. I think the Cleveland plan uh, was a step in the right direction, but we need to accelerate uh, the pace of change. I know there's current conversations in the community right now about what's the next iteration of the Cleveland plan. And we need to make sure that equity is centered in that conversation and that parents and students and teachers have a seat at that table. I would also say that, you know, we need to leverage the moment we're in right now to do the hard work of really thinking differently about what public education in Cleveland needs to look like as we think about our post COVID-19 recovery. You know, I've heard from many different parents that their kids are, are working now during high school and then learning at night. That's a model we could potentially deploy uh, and make it a part of how we teach our kids in high school so they have the workforce ready and the skills they need to compete in a 21st century economy. And I recognize we can't have a high high quality city uh, without uh, a best in class school system. And so uh, making sure that we have a school district that prioritizes college and career readiness, but also as a mayor doing the hard work of making sure that we have the right out of school time supports for our kids at the neighborhood level will go a long way. I know Say Yes has made some good investments on that, but we gotta go from being uh, having islands of excellence to a system of excellence. And that'll be a key priority in the Bibb administration. Justin Bibb is our speaker today at a virtual city club forum. This is part of our series uh, focusing on and in conversations with folks who want to be mayor of the city of Cleveland. And Justin announced his candidacy on January 11th. I'm Dan Malthrop. As you know, uh, we're going to your questions now. If you have a question for Justin, please text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the city club. We'll work it in. Justin, before the the forum even began, uh, perhaps like even a few days ago, I was receiving this question from a few different people. Uh, you're on the board of the of the RTA, which makes this a, a particularly important question for yeah. you to answer. 
RTA spends nearly $2 million every year on uh, this. I'm reading the question here, just so you know, on unconstitutional and inequitable fare enforcement by transit police. Other cities, including Seattle, Los Angeles, and Boston, already use transit ambassadors and not police as a, as a sort of form of soft power, I guess. That's me editorializing, by the way. Um, as a mayoral candidate running on an equity platform and a current RTA board member, how do you plan to address this issue? Well, uh, number one, I fully support uh, Councilman Kerry McCormick's legislation uh, to de decriminalize fare evasion uh, across the city. Uh, secondly, as a board member, I've been advocating and encouraging our uh, CEO, India Birdsong, to explore a pilot of having transit ambassadors similar to what San Francisco has done uh, with the BART system. I'm also through our ad hoc technology innovation committee, which I started uh, last year. Uh, we uh, were able to have body cameras uh, on all of our police officers and we're standing up a civilian review process as well too to make sure that there's that accountability inside of our RTA. But I'll also say I'm only one board member and I would encourage the community to continue to advocate other members of the board on this issue because it's a very important one that I take very seriously. Here's another question for you. Um, in what way will you prioritize sustainability, clean energy and climate justice to ensure Cleveland is doing its part to curb climate change, taking care of our vulnerable populations and does not get left behind as the economy shifts? Mm. Well, I think the first thing we can do is look at all of our assets in the city uh, to make sure that we are prioritizing renewable energy resources uh, moving to a carbon neutral uh, footprint and fleet as a city and thinking differently about how we leverage assets like CPP to move the city towards a, a clean energy future and embracing uh, the clean energy economy. I would also want to make sure that we build on, uh, I think, the great progress that Mayor Jackson has made with the sustainability initiative. I think that's a good step in the right direction. Uh, and I think uh, taking a regional approach to how we address uh, climate a change policy is something I'll prioritize with the county executive as well, too. Let me ask you about the sustainability initiative uh, that Mayor Jackson began. Um, what concrete things have actually come out of it? I know that, for instance, yeah. right as far as I know right now, and I could be wrong, but I don't think the city of Cleveland is recycling anymore. No, they, they aren't. Um, and, you know, I think the concrete thing that's come out of it for, from my vantage point is just the elevation of sustainability as a key part of the mayor's cabinet and trying to organize regional stakeholders around the issue. Uh, but on the recycling issue, uh, this is where we need to really lean in and do more community engagement on the importance of recycling. Uh, we could probably learn a lot from our colleagues across the county on how they're getting recycling right and what best practices we can use inside the city. Uh, and so, uh, and then, you know, making sure that we have an entire uh, framework for the, for the administration that prioritizes uh, climate change and addressing climate change in terms of how we manage our assets as well would go a long way. Justin, the um, the city has been losing population for mm -hmm. a couple of decades now. Um, what is the plan to attract more jobs and residents and how are we going to attract the new remote workforce? Mm -hmm. Well, I think having a modern and engaged city hall uh, goes a long way uh, to make sure that residents feel like it's easy to get things done with the city uh, that businesses feel like it's easy uh, to invest in the city. And without having that modern engaged city hall, it's going to be hard for us to attract uh, new residents to the city. I would also say making sure that we have a high quality school district will go a long way in growing our tax base and growing our population. I've lost many of my friends to other suburbs across the county because 
uh, they feel like, you know, they don't want to stay in the city because of the schools. And so we need to accelerate the pace of change inside of CMSD. And then you look at good models that Tulsa, for example, have deployed to attract these Zoom workers uh, to their city. It's called the Tulsa Remote Program, where they offer a $10,000 incentive to a worker in Silicon Valley to come to Tulsa and stay for a year. And that's a model that we could certainly pilot uh, in Cleveland with the right support from other stakeholders in this community to make sure we're attracting uh, these new Zoom workers as the economy continues to change. Is that, um, how would you do that and make it equitable? Well, it's, you, you have to be, for, you have to be targeted. For like a, a certain yeah. kind of, a certain kind of person and might have the, the unintended effect of reinforcing existing inequities. You, you can certainly see that, but I think this is where being targeted and what kind of workers are trying to attract uh, and also uh, being thoughtful in the approach of what segments of the economy and what segments of industry you want to attract uh, to the city as well. Justin, public housing is inequitably concentrated inside the city of Cleveland. How would you remedy this issue and make sure that public housing units are spread across the county, especially since property tax directly impacts the city's budget? Well, I think this is a place where we need to continue to advocate for more affordable housing units uh, across the city. Uh, and also prioritize more workforce housing in the city as well. I'm hearing from a number of different business owners on the importance of having more affordable housing production and also having more workforce housing in the core of our city. And so that's something that we can certainly work with with the county, as well as making sure we're advocating with our federal delegation uh, as well to make sure we're getting the right resources we need to grow our affordable housing stock across the city. Quick reminder to our viewers, if you have a question, you can text it to 330-541-5794. If you're watching on YouTube, you can leave it in the comments section there. And you can also tweet it at the City Club and we'll work it into this uh, portion of the program. Um, Justin, how do you feel about regionalization mm -hmm. and, and the, you know, the, the idea there? There's a, a you know, push towards a metro kind of form of government. Uh, obviously, the city of Cleveland has to want that yeah. if it's ever to happen. I intend to work with the county executive on a number of different issues if possible. Uh, collaboration is one of the, the cheapest tools we can use to really address some of the fiscal and major policy challenges we see in our city. Everything from shared service delivery for public health or restaurant inspection or weights and measures, these are all things we could potentially work with with the county. Uh, and also think having a regional economic development cabinet as mayor that works in concert with the county executive on a clear, cohesive economic development strategy would truly go a long way. There, there's no reason we should be competing with Beechwood and for Grand Falls for businesses. We gotta make sure that we're all rowing up the same uh, uh, river versus competing in our fiefdoms in terms of how we lead our city and our region. Cleveland is the poorest big city in the country. You mentioned that early on in, in our conversation here. Our economic development strategy has meant little accountability to the, for the wealthy with little regard for the average person in Cleveland. How do we ensure that housing, real estate development includes affordable housing? How do we enforce community benefit agreements? How can we use community land trusts? What will work? Mm. I think community land trusts are, are a great idea. Uh, particularly as a vehicle to build community wealth uh, at the local level. 
you know, when I'm talking to residents on the West side, many of them have told me they're getting priced out and pushed out, but many folks on the East side say, are saying they want more development. And so having a one size fits all approach to economic development does not work, particularly in a city like Cleveland. And so we need to have a hyper-local approach to economic development and making sure that we're using the right incentives and the right tools uh, to fit that hyper-local approach to development. I would also say this. What does that mean in practice, Justin? What does that actually mean in practice? Like, give me a give me an example. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, some of the organizing I've been doing on the southeast side. Many of these businesses aren't connected to the digital economy. They don't have email accounts. Uh, many of them couldn't apply for a PPP loan because they didn't have the right banking relationship. And so, you know, for example, having a digital Main Street initiative to support small businesses in Kinsman on the Kinsman Road corridor could really go a long way to creating wealth at the neighborhood level and bringing back those communities. But I would also say, you know, we need to scrutinize every incentive we're deploying to make sure it fits uh, of the larger economic development strategy for the city, but also that it's appropriate to the conditions of that neighborhood because Tremont is very different than Mount Pleasant. And there's a lot of nuance to that that we need to make sure we're looking at in terms of how we deploy economic development policy uh, across the city. And, you know, I, I would I would drill down this a little bit more as well. You know, one model I've looked at a lot is uh, what our neighbors down south in Akron have done with their Office of Integrated Development. You know, that's a good example of bringing engineering, planning, community and economic development under one umbrella to make sure that our city has a coordinated approach to how we're looking at the larger economic development strategy uh, for the city and enhancing the urban experience as well for residents. Question coming back to the digital divide, how are we going to prioritize this work? COVID accelerated the digital economy and Cleveland has an opportunity to leverage its low cost of business to capitalize on the remote economy transition. What do you wanna do? Well, uh, you know, I think that there are a number of different models across the country we can look at. I also want to make sure we take note of the great work of other like Digital C and others have done to really address this issue on a short term basis. Uh, but I think this is a place where we can take bolder leadership at the city level to identify city resources and non city resources to build a municipal broadband strategy uh, for the city. Uh, we had a missed opportunity uh, just last year when we upgraded over 60,000 streetlights across our city. And we could have put uh, smart cell nodes in those cities, in those streetlights rather, that could have helped connect those neighborhoods to the internet. And, and it, would, it would have been a cost neutral investment as well. So that's a prime example of how we can use existing infrastructure in our, inside our city to address the digital divide, to get more scale to solve this problem. The um, one of the things that you pointed out earlier in the in our conversation had to do with the lack of with citizens feeling shut out of decisions around yeah. um, economic incentives provided to our stadiums. Um, I want to ask you what you think those deals ought to look like, um, because there's always this question, right, about um, these are sort of anchors. These are economic anchors, right? They they drive. Uh, you know, games like whether it's the Browns or the Cavs or the Indians, rather, or our baseball franchise, um, they and even in, in years where they're not winning a lot, they still drive economic activity. Um, 
And they're still huge generators of income tax revenue for the employees of those organizations, whether they're um, whether they're seasonal employees or um, or players. Yeah. You know, Dan, I would say this. What we saw with the Quicken Loans deal was frustration uh, that residents didn't have a seat at the table and that the process was already flawed in the first place. And historically, you know, how things got done in Cleveland was a group of guys got together at the union club, said this is how the deal was going to get done, and boom, that was it. Instead, what you've seen in other cities is, you know, uh, mayors have really taken ownership of bringing the community along to make sure these deals had the right value for all of our residents. In Atlanta, uh, Mayor Kasim Reed made sure that when they upgraded the Atlanta Falcons arena, that there was a major neighborhood investment initiative tied that to tie to that deal. Same thing happened in Minneapolis as well. And so I think structuring deals that support our residents, but that also are gonna drive the right economic value over time are a key part of it. And centering equity and inclusion and resident voice need to be anchors of how we structure these deals in the future. And that's a place where mayoral leadership matters. What would you do uh, with regard to the question of annexing East Cleveland? You know, I think that's up to the residents uh, of the city of East Cleveland. You know, I want to do whatever I can as mayor to support that community in those neighborhoods. But right now, uh, I'm just focused on making sure that Cleveland has everything it can to recover from COVID-19, build a strong economic recovery to make sure we can truly meet the moment and do what we can to provide high quality basic city services for our residents. What would you say to voters who view your financial and entrepreneurial history as too reductionistic to fix the deeply rooted emotional societal issues our community is facing? Is your experience appropriate to truly make inroads with respect to these issues? You know, Dan, I think that's up to the voters to decide. You know, I've been fortunate to uh, have a, a long career working in government, uh, working in the private sector and working for the nonprofit sector as well. Uh, and the problems that we see in Cleveland right now are very nuanced that require a interdisciplinary lens to solve. Uh, and I recognize that, you know, having a mayor understands how the economy and finance work is also an added value, but also having a mayor who shares the lived experiences of its residents is also a bad value as well. And so I think my experience is what we need in terms of how we move our city forward. Justin, there have been a few questions uh, coming back to the issue of climate and sustainability. Can you, I want to give you a chance to talk more about what you think the city ought to be doing there. What kind of plans uh, would, you, would you implement beyond, you know, um, beyond the sustainability conference that they yeah. created? Well, I think number one, um, you know, I fully believe in this concept of a 15-minute city where regardless of where you live in the city, you have a, a park to walk to access to affordable transit and a job you can walk to as well. And I think that centering our city planning vision around that will truly address climate change uh, on a long-term basis. I would also say, when you look at all the assets we own from uh, the water department to CPP, how are we making sure that we're using those assets to move Cleveland towards a clean energy future? And then, you know, making sure that we're able to do the basics like recycling and doing the hard work of engaging our residents on what it means to recycle and how do you recycle appropriately is fundamental to making sure that we can achieve these longer term goals of embracing sustainability. 
there's an effort by uh, other mayors across the state to block a, the implementation of HB6. Where do you line up on that? I completely agree with it. Uh, the city should join that lawsuit. And I think this is a larger question about why weren't we holding uh, uh, CPP accountable uh, earlier on in this process? And that's a place we need to make, make sure we're leaning in an appropriate fashion. What do you see as the relationship between the city of Cleveland and the state of Ohio? I mean, when, when it comes to clean energy, for instance, and yep. provisions blocking uh, the expansion of alternative energy and sustainable energy in HB6, it would seem that your goals are at odds with those of the state. Well, I would do whatever I can to work uh, with the governor uh, to execute our agenda to move to support our residents. I would also say, you know, I would immediately rejoin the Ohio Mayor's Alliance and make sure that we have the right advocacy strategy uh, as, uh, as cities across the state to get what we need uh, for the city of Cleveland. Uh, here's another question from a viewer. As a lifelong Mount Pleasant resident, and frankly not a big fan of any of the current candidates, I'm concerned about the way Bibb has portrayed the area. His announcement video felt like poverty porn and reminded me of people going on destruction bus tours in New Orleans, Louisiana after Katrina. How can Bibb help neighborhoods without exploiting the people who live here now? You know, I wanted to make that announcement video where I grew up because who I am as a kid from Mount Pleasant has never left me. And it's that story of, um, of determination and hope and optimism that I got from my mom, that I continue to get from my grandmother, that I wanted to showcase in that video. And I wanna make sure that as a kid from Mount Pleasant, who's been afforded so many opportunities because uh, you know, I had a mom and, and, and grandma and, and a dad who made sure I had what I needed to have a shot at life. I wanna make sure that you know, my story is the rule, not the exception. And that's why I'm in this race. And so I'm not, I'm not afraid of my story. And I wanna make sure that everyone feels confident and are empowered by their ability to succeed and achieve and, you know, that's how I'm going to center this campaign. And that's how that's how we're going to run and win this election. I want to come back to the status quo uh, conversation that we had yeah. earlier and ask you to talk about some of the things that you think Mayor Jackson has done exceptionally well mm -hmm. in his uh, in his 16 years um, and uh, and places where you one or two places where you think he just he could have done a lot better. I would say, um, you know, Mayor Jackson has served the city well, and he's a fine public servant, uh, and he deserves our respect and gratitude. I think he, you know, led the city well after the Great Recession in managing our city budget and has been a good steward of our city's finances. Uh, but the question I think that's at stake in this election, Dan, is whether or not Cleveland will meet the moment. No, this election is about the next 50 to 100 years, and so we need to be aggressive about modernizing City Hall and being more engaged with the country and the rest of the world and what it takes to create vibrant cities. I would also say we need to make sure we have a mayor who prioritizes collaboration and isn't concerned about just holding our piece of the pie, but growing the pie with everyone. And that's something I intend to do as mayor, collaborate as much as possible to get everything we need for, for the city to achieve our potential. What are your thoughts on the, on, this is a, a bunch of like sort of phrases and slashes here, but like urban renewal slash gentrification versus urban renewal slash community investment slash sustainability. 
So there's a whole nest of issues, right? Which I yeah, think yeah. sort of supposes or postulates that there is gentrification happening inside the city, which is uh, something people like to debate. And is often, of course, how you define gentrification yeah. is a problem too. So, so jump in right there. You know, I think <laughs> the word, yeah, I think the word is just so loaded for so many people. So it's important just to deconstruct it and think differently about how we think about community development in the city. I would say, you know, when I'm talking to residents on the east side of the city, many of them are calling for more investment, but investment that includes them in the process where they can be a part of starting a small business or buying a vacant lot so they could, you know, build on their property uh, and make sure they have access to affordable home ownership. I would also say we need to make sure that we are creating communities that reflect the people that live there and not pushing people out. And so everything we can do to do that, we have to make sure we're using every tool we can to address that, that issue. And so this is about making sure that our development is centered on people and the residents of the city, but also having an equity lens in terms of how we think about what development makes sense for our respective neighborhoods. There was an important exhibit that was uh, shared around the city that many people visited prior to the pandemic uh, called Undesign the Red Line, um, which the, the idea was, for those who haven't seen it, that policy created so many of the, con the, the, the problems of redlining, the concentrated poverty, adverse health outcomes, adverse economic outcomes, adverse criminal justice outcomes that all concentrated in these historically redlined neighborhoods. And if policy created all those problems, policy could create, could be the solution. Um, what kinds of policies would you implement from, you know, the, the maybe learnings from that exhibit, from that engagement effort? And it was more than an exhibit. That was a, a true kind of public engagement, civic engagement um, moment for residents of, uh, and of Cleveland and residents of greater Cleveland. Really. You know, uh, Andre Perry, uh, a researcher and economist I look up to well, has this book called Know Your Price. And it talks about the history of redlining and how it's undervalued, uh, particularly black communities across the city. And I think the first thing you have to admit is even the maps of how we invest in right now are rooted in redlining. And so we need to come up with new maps and a new framework of how we invest and really hold our banking partners accountable to make sure that we are providing access to affordable uh, lending opportunities so they can own a home or giving them access to capital Says the former bank employee. Yeah, but you know, and I, but I think it's important to make sure that we're holding these people accountable, especially if we're going to have a banking relationship uh, with the city of Cleveland. Uh, and then I, I also think that having a cabinet level official inside the mayor's office, fo focused on looking at the disparate impact of every policy we have on the books and how it impacts people of color in the city, is very important. And that's something I intend to do as mayor. Finally, last question for you. How will the life of the average resident, this is from a listener, how will the life of the average resident, the voter, the Cleveland voter be different four years from now if you are in office? Well, after four years of administration, uh, you'll have safe streets you can walk on where we're gonna prioritize uh, people over cars, access to a high quality school in your neighborhood where your kid has the ability to get the skills they need to compete and succeed in life. And also this community is gonna feel safer, we're gonna be more resilient, and we're gonna lead America in terms of how we build an inclusive city that works for everybody. And Cleveland can't wait for that kind of change. 
Justin, thanks for spending some time with us. I apologize again about the technical difficulties. Thank you for having me, Dan. Good to see you and good luck to you. Take care. We've been talking with Justin Bibb. He's a candidate for mayor of the city of Cleveland. He announced on January 11th. In the next few weeks, we'll talk with two more candidates, Dick Noth on February 24th at noon and Ross DeBello on March 10th at noon. All City Club forums are presented for free every week, thanks to generous support from Bank of America, Key Bank, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC. You can join them in supporting the City Club's mission by making a contribution online or becoming a member at cityclub.org. I'm Dan Multher. Please stay strong, stay healthy, get that vaccine if you can. Please wash your hands and wear a mask, maybe two apparently, and stay close in your hearts if you can't be close in person. Our forum is adjourned.